You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hi guys, welcome back. We've got uh, a teleconference going on here. We have myself, Matt Dye is calling in. Matt, you there? I am here. What's up, guys? Not a lot. Not a lot. Just excited to jump into this podcast. Um, We're going to dial it back a little bit on... The, the introduction, I guess, from Mr. Caleb Traw from Georgia. We met Caleb 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, as a farm manager and uh, land manager. And then over time, we just, we've just stayed in touch. And he's done some very interesting things that you guys will hear about on this week's podcast. Caleb, you there? Yep. How's it going, guys? So, Caleb, you've been... Uh, Man, uh, you've been down in Georgia, South Georgia, for, I guess, your whole life. And when we met you, you were a farm manager, and you were starting to do some things that, um, I guess, were new to the food plotting world or new-ish to the food plotting world. And now you do something a little bit different. So tell us who you are and, and what you've got going on. Yeah, well, as you guys said, my name's Caleb Traw, and I live down here in southwest Georgia, and when I was growing up, I was always the enjoyed agriculture and growing things. I I always had a big garden, but when I was, say, 10 to 12 years old, I kind of started seeing that we could do things just a little bit differently. Case in point, uh, I started growing a cover crop in our family garden, and I noticed that whenever I grew a cover crop, the next crop that followed always seemed to do a little better so that was kind of some of the things that piqued my interest even growing up but then in 2014 i started uh, managing a, a wildlife and timber plantation here in the georgia plantation belt and had uh you guys were out there and gave us some good recommendations and so i managed that for about seven years and then now 
in 2021, I've started my own consulting work with farmers and growers in this area, uh, specifically highlighting uh, soils and what we can what we can do to improve the quality of our soils. And I also do that in addition to our row crop operation that I help manage as well. So I kind of get things from multiple different angles, you can say. So you sound like you're right on the track of what uh, Matt and I have done with you consult, but there's a home base where it's like this is where we really test test our, our power here and test our, our knowledge because – uh, we can probably do things a little bit riskier on our own farm rather than advise it for somebody else. But at the same time, you have that experience of running your own farm and own operation and gives everybody kind of an idea to know that you do have experience even on your own ground. And you're not just giving advice without any real experience on your own on your own dirt. That's right. Yep. We always have to have uh, something to back up what we say. Nobody likes being the guinea pig and, and I'll try anything. The list of things that I've tried are probably what a lot of people refer to as craziness. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of good though, too, to, to <clears throat> one, be relevant, but for those people who are, let's say, hiring you, it's good to know that you're a guy who has skin in the game too you're willing to risk and try these things it's not just like it is a suggestion or a recommendation you're applying this information and and i've likely seen it work obviously before going forward and, and saying hey you tried this now too that's right yeah and being only 25 years old this year i don't have the years of experience that i can draw on but I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with ones who I consider uh, some of the, at the top of their game when it comes to the agricultural industry. And being able to learn from them as, as well as the boots on the ground experience that comes from our own farm and the things I learned from that, as well as the growers that I work with, uh, learning as much as I can on their farms as well. Awesome. Yeah, so... One of the big reasons why you're on this week is, well, going back to when we first met you, you, we've had a lot of conversations over the years about uh, quail management and the things you're doing down there to improve native habitat. But at the same time, it seems like every time I turn around, you're posting something, soil health, regenerative ag, crop yields. And so it's like you've started jumping full-fledged into crop growth, soil health, and understanding that realm, uh, and then trying to advise la- landowners and, and uh, growers uh, how to improve their ground, just like you're working on your own ground. Yep, yep, that's what, that's what I do for fun. That's what keeps me awake at night, um, <laughs> focusing on the things that we can't see below ground, but uh, that, yep, that's what I enjoy doing, and so I try to try to help as many people as I can because it, it's, it can get complicated very quickly, yeah. so uh, as long as we can take the step in the right direction, that's always beneficial. I think of it like this, when I look at somebody like you and and I probably get lumped into this as well but um I'm, I'm or I'm going to try to lump myself in with the 20 year olds um whenever you see a younger guy in a in a business or in a career doing something like this 
people will say, well, he might lack experience, but at the same time, he might, but it, we can make sure that he's probably not got a long history of being stuck in his ways and yep. trying to do the same thing over and over. And I think right here in the world of crop growth and uh, crop yields, that, that, that that's an, a wonderful thing because uh, there's this new movement that we'll touch on and or that we'll get into on this on this podcast and really changing up the game of way uh, uh, we grow crops. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on that. But what does a day-to-day workload look like for you as a crop consultant? Well, during the winter time, it uh, primarily consists of going out <clears throat> to the fields of the growers that I work with and pulling soil samples. And then once we get the analysis done on those and the recommendations made, then we sit down and go over how to meet those recommendations, the practices that they can do to get the most out of their crops. So that's kind of the, uh, when it's not the growing season, that's what we do. And then during the growing season, I also work with the ones, the growers that I consult for, but then on our own row crop farm, there's a lot of tractor time to be had to get our crops growing as well. Yeah. Well, at least you're not in... Matt and I, we fall into the case a lot where people are like, oh, yeah, when are you working on your farm? I'm like, no. With our <laughs> schedule, because we consult so many places, uh, it's hard for us to be home. And especially, uh, I mean, when we're home, we're here we're here at home, but it's hard to get to the farm to actually do a lot of the work. So fortunately, you probably have a clientele list that's a lot closer to home where you can still do your own work on your own ground. Um and and I, I know that's probably a huge benefit. It is. Uh, I would, will say that I do travel a con, uh, an extensive amount to some places, but uh, not nearly as far as you guys uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> so it does allow us it does allow me to have a little bit more time on our farm and to take care of all the necessary things because I can't let my things go and yeah. then tell everybody else that they should be doing this and that when I'm not doing them yep. in practice on our farm as well. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah. So as we go through some of these questions I've got for you, some of them I asked last week as well to Mitt Wardlaw. And so there's a few that people may hear and go, I think he asked that question last week. And there's a purpose for that. I'll probably ask him every single week that this soil health series goes on because I think it's important to get the, the opinion of each guest and see how much they align or differ from one to the next. So um, as we jump into this soil health, if you will, air quote that, um, can quickly, we, you know, you can get lost in the weeds very quickly. So let's just, I'm going to reiterate, why should a deer hunter or a food plot guy care about soil health, improving soil health, and overall soil fertility? That's a loaded question, and I don't think an hour could uh, cover the answer to that question in good enough detail. But uh, a few of the things that stick out to me are the fact that everything that we do starts from the soil. That is the foundation of either the plants or the animals, everything else. It all starts with the soil. And if we look At a map of the United States, generally speaking, the areas that have a higher soil quality also 
we could say have the biggest deer because we know that the nutrients in the soil get put through the plants and into the things that benefit from those plants as well. And then in a higher quality soil, uh, we see that each bite that animals take, speaking from a food plot standpoint, becomes more nutritious and, and is better for the animal as well. And when it comes to soil health, from my experience, looking at things from an agronomy standpoint, from a crop production standpoint, and then turning around and using my experience as a food plotter or a habitat manager, it allows me to kind of see things from different angles. So I may kind of jump from one side to the other in this discussion, kind of to try to give a, a roundabout view from different angles. When we think of soil health, that's the the trendy term, the it has a lot of frills <laughs> around it, we could oh, say. Yeah. Everybody likes to throw throw those words around because the common belief is that if we have better soil health, then we should have better crops or by extension, better food plots. And when people think of soil health, a lot of times they quickly think of cover crops and no-till. Well, those are fine. That we're not. I'm not going to sit here and say that those are bad practices or there's anything wrong with them. But sometimes I feel that our scope is often too narrow. The growers I work with, I try to help open their minds and see that there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, certainly more than just one or two things. It, it encompasses every management practice that we do on the landscape. It's either going to help us or hurt us when it comes to soil health. I think probably a comparison I have is when you talk to an agronomist or a crop grower and you and you mention soil health, it's like saying, so what do you think about soil health? When somebody could turn and ask me, so what do you think about habitat management? And it's like, well, that's a a wide, I mean, we're casting a very large net when we say, what do you think about habitat management? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's so many different things that you can go into that the term soil health encompasses. But we have to back up just a little bit and, and start with the basics. If you want to have a discussion about soil health, then your previous guest did a nice job of explaining the, the three characteristics that sum up soil health. That's the uh, physical characteristics. Uh, the textbooks show us that ideal soil is 50% dirt, 25% water, and 25% air. So there are things that we can do to try to keep that in line, like reducing our tillage, not breaking up the soil aggregates, and also making sure that our soil is well-drained when it comes to the physical side. And then from the chemical side, we think about routine soil testing and not just for the macronutrients, the, but then also getting a complete soil test and looking at the trace elements and keeping our pH in line with what our crops need and also the soil life needs. And that also takes us to the biological side when it comes to soil health, thinking of things like increasing soil organic matter, uh, promoting microbial activity, uh, some practices that are common in the 
uh, agricultural world is cover cropping or in a food plot world, basically trying to keep living root systems growing as many days of the year as possible. Because it all comes down to when we talk about that biological side, the microorganisms in the soil. Uh, I was at a seminar a couple months ago, and they said that in one acre of healthy soil, there are 6,000 pounds of microorganisms. Wow. And and they eat at the table first, meaning that when we amend the soil, they eat first and whatever's left over, then the plants take what's left. So I ask people a lot of times, okay, so thousands of pounds per acre, let's liken it to a cow. We have a cow on every acre that represents our microorganisms. So what are we doing to feed our cow in addition to feeding our crops? And so people look at, well, how is my soil doing? Do I have healthy soil? Well, there's a lot of expensive soil tests that we could do to tell somebody, yes, you have good soil health, but generally that's not going to be in a realm of what a food potter wants to do. So we look at organic matter because organic matter is a nice indicator of our soil health. So we can see as we take samples from a year-to-year basis, are our levels going up, are our organic matter levels going down, and that kind of gives us a good indicator about where we are when it comes to soil health. Mm. Specifically, Caleb, that was a fantastic um, description of everything and kind of boiling it down to what a food plotter, let's say, should care about, but specifically, why organic matter? Why is that a measure that they should care about and what does that kind of indicate regarding their soil and what does it what does it do how does it fluctuate um and what would someone see if organic matters levels change in their soil well that is a great question uh, when it comes to organic matter uh, we think of being able to hold water and nutrients it's basically the sponge in the soil to make uh, sure so, nothing is leaching out that's right okay. and when if you have soil or, that or, has or washing off the top exactly okay if you have soil that has good organic matter it's going to uh hold more water and that means that if we have a dry spell it's going the crops or the food plot with the higher level of organic matter it's going to hold on a little bit longer and then it also uh holds more nutrients in there as well as the decomposition or breakdown of that organic matter as the microbes are, are working on it. Basically for each percent of organic matter, we get free nutrients that are basically re-released back into the soil from that organic matter every single year. And, and I know that there's commonly um, misuse, let's say, but what is the difference for everyone listening between organic matter and organic material? Organic material has not been broken down into organic matter. Uh, basically, organic matter, or some people will call it humus, it is the final stage that things that have been alive before 
go-to. So basically, when you have a crop or a food plot, the crop residue, basically the material above ground, but also the material below ground, is organic material. But then as that breaks down and the soil biology start to work on it and basically take it down by level all the way down to organic matter. And that's basically the the end goal of the organic material. Have you seen any stats on how much material, what's the ratio of amount of material to equal like organic matter percentage or just the amount of organic matter in pounds? Have you seen any kind of stat on that? I would like to do some work on that to see see if there's something exact. But a rule of thumb that I have heard is that it takes 10 pounds of organic material to create one pound of organic matter. So when we think of the millions of pounds of soil on each acre, if we want to raise our organic matter by 1%, that is a lot of pounds of organic matter that we need to add. And then we multiply that by 10 when it comes to organic material. So we would have to put down thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds of organic material to make a, to see a good increase in organic matter levels. <laughs> so what, obviously I guess with, with, with all that, let's say weight and production of food uh, in the form of organic material that would then break down to get organic matter, you're saying that one, that's not happening overnight. And then two, a heavily browsed food plot that doesn't have a lot of um, extra tonnage or forage to be broken down from organic material into organic matter. It's not really accomplishing that increase in a, in a short time frame. Correct. That's right. Yep. I mean, even when we talk about a crop production standpoint and we think of, certain crops that produce lots of organic material. Uh, Take, for instance, corn. Uh, Of course, when the combine goes through the field, it takes the grain off, but then the plant above ground and the roots below ground are left, which can turn into organic matter in due time. And you can see an increase. But then when we talk about the forage aspect and we're removing the plant material uh, one thing that we work with as well in addition to grain corn I also do some with silage corn where you remove the whole plant there it becomes very hard to build the same levels of organic matter because we are taking the plant off of the field. So it's the same thing when you talk about a food plot standpoint. If we're growing a food plot and 90% of the above ground material is removed off of the food plot, we really aren't adding that much back into the soil and we're we're turning our microbes into being on a starvation diet. Yeah. I I I saw a stat it comes from the cattle industry 
but it's basically three different plants, and it's talking about when 90% of the plant is consumed, the roots stop growing, 100% of the roots stop growing entirely for 17 days. And then if 50% is consumed, they stop, uh, it's like something like 40% of the roots stop growing for 17 days. And then if like only 70% or 30% of the plant is consumed, 0% of the uh, roots stop growing. So it basically reiterates the fact of, rotational type grazing where you take a little bit but then you let that plant recover in a food plot world you don't get that recovery time because deer are in there every night or every morning or every evening and they're browsing and if you have high deer numbers and you have every night that food plot is getting browsed you're not going to have much root growth because you have plants who are really struggling to survive so they're not really have the energy to to continue growing roots down into the soil. That's a good point, and I'm glad that you mentioned roots. Everybody likes to think that I have this big crop of cereal rye or whatever (laughs) crop that has tons of material above ground, but if you actually look at where your organic matter comes from, it's not as much the above ground as it is the below ground. Basically, those decayed roots are the primary uh, avenue that is increasing your organic matter. So doing everything that we can to keep good, healthy root systems and not over-browsing them to the point where they're stopped growing, as per your point, is going to be very important if we are focused on soil health and improving soil organic matter. And I think that's that's obviously great, great points to make. And the other aspect, I think, that goes into the whole root production side of things is the ability for, again, the whole soil health, um, the, the, the big word, the umbrella of soil health, is to be able to mine and reach different nutrients in the soil. So if, I guess, going into... The, the, the term diversity or having multiple different types of root systems in a specific acre or square footage growing is also important, correct? Yes, I mean, I mean, as, as many different types of root systems as we can put into the ground, the better we're going to be at harvesting the, the residual uh, soil fertility that we have. And also we think about If we're going to have a discussion about the soil microbiology, take, for instance, what everybody likes to talk about, mycorrhizal fungi. Well, not everything that we plant in the food plot is going to be a good host for that mycorrhizae. So by incorporating different species into our cover crops or uh, in this conversation in our food plots is going to help promote the diversity when it comes to the things that we cannot see in the ground as well. Are there any crops that you think of in the food plot world that are good hosts for mycorrhizal fungi? Some good hosts for mycorrhizae. Um, I like cereal grains. They are all good hosts for that. One thing that, uh, one that is not is brassicas. I see a lot of folks that plant 
and it may not be a monoculture of a specific turnip it may be a mix of turnips and radishes and things like that but if we have a mix of things that all are non-host for mycorrhizae then we go and we plant our summer crop and wonder why our leaves are turning purple because the plants cannot uh, take up any phosphorus because our mycorrhizae <laughs> fungi are not there yeah yeah <laughs> I've also heard uh, sorghum sedan grass is a good host during the summer months for mycorrhizal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much all of the cereal crops are are good hosts gotcha. for, and not just mycorrhizae. There are there are many different uh, types of bacteria and fungi, and some of them uh, like certain crops better than others. So that's that's the point. I mean, we can make a list of what. Uh, what crops are quote good and what crops are quote bad but if we make sure that we are always planting multiple species and planting uh not just cereal grains or not just brassicas we can make sure that we're we have a comprehensive array of species that we grow i think that's that's a good point because it i'm sorry i don't mean i'll I'll jump on it but go ahead well i'll at the end of the day, we can talk about what species are good for the host of, of fungi and, and the necessary bacteria, and we know diversity is better than, than monocultures. But, you know, at the same time, <clears throat> we go back to what food plotters in the previous conversation should be really focusing on is that organic matter level of increasing. We, we're still we're still far, so far out from really raising those levels in a timely like in our lifetime basis i'm not talking you know in the matter of a couple growing seasons we're, we're talking like lifetime of ownership and completing these practices in a in a food plot i want to stress that food plot situation um because we're talking about like how much grazing opportunity you know is actually occurring there we're not really raising organic matter that much even by doing some of these practices is that correct exactly i mean if we're taking the above ground portion of the forage that we produce off and by extension if that is a limiting factor for our root growth then that's going to uh get us behind as when it comes to building organic matter because when you talk about from an agricultural standpoint uh People with good soil say, if I can build 2% organic matter in my career, that is a good goal for me to have. And they are returning thousands of pounds of material back into their soil every single year. So if you don't have that, when it comes to a food plot standpoint, I'll speak from experience. It is very hard to build organic matter in the average food plot especially in our area here in the southeast where our organic matter levels may be a half a percent Mm -hmm. now if you take somebody uh in the midwest where they have two percent already and they have the climate that is favorable to building organic matter they may can build it a little bit more but it's still going to be limited unless they are very very focused on building organic matter 
Mm. It has to be a very, it seems like it has to be a very intentional purpose for those acres. And, and I guess I look at like, you know, the ag world or, or many of your growers, the land that they own um, percentage wise, it's probably all or a 90% tillable, right? So that is their biggest um, resource that they're managing for. So soil health from an important standpoint would be high on the list because again, that's the foundation. We know that, but, but again, transfer that over to a, a recreational property, whereas food plots are a smaller percentage by drastic numbers is is that same importance level do 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 landowners need to be placing that same importance level on on one percent two percent of their property in their food plot acres when it sounds like that goal is really difficult to obtain i'm not saying that's not important but like how feasible is it that's a good point and and at the end of the day that's the million dollar question because like you mentioned Generally speaking, food plots encompass a very small percentage of the wildlife wildlife properties landscape, and so we can make the one or two percent of acres the best in the state. But if that is such a small percentage of acres, and the deer, they're not taking every bite out of the food plot. They're still using the, the native resources, even if we do everything that we can to a food plot to make it the best, at the end of the day, is that going to translate in a 20% increase in inches on a buck? I don't think we can say that. I mean, that's not saying that focusing on soil health isn't important, but we have to focus on what is our most limiting factor. And in a recreational a property standpoint, a lot of times there are some low-hanging fruit per se when it comes to outside of the food plots that maybe our time and resources may be better spent on. We may see more of a return on an investment of time doing something else. Now, what if the limiting factor is our food plots on the landscape well, then that may be a slightly different story. But I look at soil health on food plots as the icing on the cake. I mean, it's that it's that top layer. Well, we have to have the cake first. We can't say we have 90% of closed canopy timber, but my food plot's so good. I've got the healthiest soil in the state. It, you're probably not going to see a difference. Yeah. I think a couple things came came up in my head going back to the organic matter in comparison of crop growers versus food plotters. And I think there's a, an advantage for food plotters in the fact that a lot of the crop farmers are combining or removing the vegetation and food plotters are basically growing it. And then whatever the deer don't carry away, most of the time gets broken down right there on the on the soil. Um, but I think where a lot of guys mess up or can mess up if, if they're focused on, you know, let's just say they're trying to improve soil health and that's their goal. Then I think that one of the big things they should talk about or, or work on doing is incorporating diverse blends that have 
plants that necessarily aren't selected by deer to browse. So you continue yeah. to have that growth of a plant that's that's expanding roots into the soil. It's growing vegetation above and probably even protecting some of the more preferred forages um, that deer might overbrowse. And so, for example, I see a lot of times where guys are talking about they're focused on soil health, but they're planting blends that are specifically uh, all species that deer browse. And you've got to, going back to those stats about root activity, if they're getting overbrowsed the entire field, then you're not having very many active roots and you're certainly not having much vegetation above ground. And so I think food plot guys can really do things that crop guys can't, but then basically what we know about organic matter Caleb it sounds like we can do all that but it's still a slow process that's right and you you made a couple good points and and it's something that I've had to uh learn with uh failures per se when it comes to food plots I mean everybody loves a nice uh luscious green soybean food plot well in our area with the number of deer that we have our density it's going to be dirt in about two weeks (laughs) and so what's going to happen for the next four months until we come back and plant our fall food plot well it's going to be bare dirt baking in the sun and i can guarantee you if you could measure the microbes before and the microbes after there would be a significant reduction and so being able to incorporate species that may not be preferred browse but they are allowing you to build that soil health is so important and at the end of the day that's going to set you up for success for years to come gotcha perfect so let's lead into i think well go go ahead ahead. i was going to say um, Caleb, unless you want to stick on this topic, we're going to shift, Matt, and go into another little yeah. bit uh, no, of different questions. So, Caleb, all this talk about soil health, there's been just, there's new things that are happening in the crop world, and some of that has bled over into the food plot world. And when we met you in 2014, I believe it was, um, you were pretty quickly into doing, uh, using a tool that is now starting to kind of come into more conversations especially for Matt and I with all the landowners we deal with but crimping do you remember the first year that you began crimping and talk a little bit about um, the the species that you were crimping and 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 what times of the year you were using a crimper as far as a Using a crimper, it was primarily a tool to terminate our fall food plots going into the spring. Uh, cereal grains are usually what people are are crimping, especially also when it comes to the agricultural standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes I feel is that one of those things that that is what it has cracked up to be because you know there's a lot of a lot of paid promotion in the wildlife industry and uh, there are some considerations that we need to take some lessons that have been learned if we want to use a crimper especially if if we are following that crimper 
with a drill planting something uh, directly after that. We have to worry about, okay, are we having a green bridge, basically uh, a way for pests and diseases to transfer from one crop directly to the next? Uh, We have to worry about, are we crimping at the correct growth stage? Because if we're crimping too early, crimping too late, are we going to have the results that we that we desire? And then also, uh, when it comes to crimping, uh, my food plots are not level. They aren't a flat sheet of paper. They've always seemed to got always seem to have a bunch of dips and holes and and hills and such. And so, I always had trouble getting a good termination in uneven terrain. And so basically kind of what I went back doing was terminating with herbicide and then coming back in and planting my next crop. That way I can make sure that if there are any resistant weeds per se, that we take care of those, that we aren't going to have any problems moving into the next crop. Yeah. Did you crimp anything like, did you do any summer crop crimping attempts or testing just to see what it would do? Not really, because usually by the end of the summer crop, inevitably there are a few weeds that I want to make sure do not go to seed yeah, and become a problem for the next crop. And yeah. so... I usually just when it, when it comes to that situation, just go out with a herbicide and and make sure that we start clean with our yeah. next crop. Gotcha. Did you when you were crimping in the with the fall crops? Did you? Uh, I think you planted some diversity, but how did it handle like turnips or annual clovers or winter peas? Any other anything outside of cereal grains? that were mixed in your fall crop, what did it do with those? <laughs> it was a challenge. <laughs> it was. I mean, when you talk about a plant that is three to four inches tall and the uh, and the ribs on a crimper are six inches wide, there's a good chance that you may not even contact a small plant when you're trying to terminate. And gotcha. so sometimes what I would have to do is I would still come back maybe even after I drill and and with a herbicide application to take care of some of those things if I wanted them dead. Now, I mean, when it comes to, say, if I had like clover or peas or something that would naturally uh, go through senescence, uh, naturally uh, die when the weather warms up and I'm saying, hey, I'm not worried. It can live there another few weeks and it'll be gone anyways. Yeah. Recently, I shared on our uh, Land and Legacy Habitat podcast Q&A Facebook group um, uh, an article I read, I came across a couple years ago, and I just keep going back to it, but it's six things your mother never warned you about when using roller crimpers. And one of the first things, problems, was uneven cover crop termination after crimping. And another one that you mentioned, I don't even think it's on here because most information about crimpers is from the ag world, but... Um, you mentioned trying to find that perfect window of when's the appropriate time to 
crimp. And I think if anybody's been around food plots much, they notice that they're, especially if a food plot's got much size to it at all, there's variance in the mature, in the, in the, in the timing or the maturity cycle of those plants because one side or one edge may be over browsed more than the other. And it seems like I've got plants out in the center that are blooming, but plants along the edge, which are a week behind. Did you have any kind of experience in noticing that when running a crimper? To an extent, yes. Gotcha. I mean, that, that's always a factor. The biggest one that that sticks out in my mind is that in a diverse blend, you may have, even when it comes to cereal grains, different maturities. Yeah. And so what would be the ideal time for cereal to rye may not line up with the same uh, ideal time for oats or wheat or triticale. Gotcha or whatever your species. And that's what uh, crimpers, like you mentioned, they kind of basically walked over from the ag world and their, their usage in the ag world was usually to terminate a monoculture cover crop Mm -hmm. and it works great, but there are a few considerations that we may call it. We don't say drawbacks or anything because there's a lot of people that use crimpers and there's a lot of people that like them and they have it perfected to where it works great and that's awesome. But if you're going to go in saying this is the silver bullet, I am going to buy this crimper and this no-till drill. I'm going to spend $30,000 and I'm going to have wonderful soil health. Well, we're fooling ourselves at the end of the day if that's what we're going into this with gotcha yeah i see the the crimper in the ag world being used almost exclusively it seems like with cereal rye and a hairy vetch uh cover crop yep and then but you look at the food plot world and I, i i don't think i've seen that blend anywhere in the food plot world for uh fall food plot mix i think that's right what about what about let's say in a, in a extremely diverse blend uh, of fall cover crops that you're trying to terminate in the spring? Just there since since things are over browsed um, typically and or relatively patchy um, can be in food plots. The sunlight transmission through mulch would be different comparatively speaking to like 100 pounds of cereal rye in an ag situation, correct? So so at the end of the day, when you, let's say if you use a crimper, you terminate it effectively, there's still going to be differences in that mulch layer composition from a weed protection standpoint, correct? That's right. And I'm not sure if I have a good answer on how to fix that. It's just one of those things that it's going to be what it's going to be when it comes to a food plot standpoint. I mean, uh, even when we talk about weed control, it's not necessarily going, there's not a silver bullet when it comes to that either. So we mm-hmm. think of the the, the uh, physical characteristics of having that ground covered as being good weed control, but that may not be enough in certain situations especially if we're fighting a specific problem weed that we we're trying to get rid of one of the things that i think people may be considering um you know as as maybe a trade-off let's say they say 
I don't like using herbicide, um, whether it's health reasons or for soil health reasons, thinking um, or coming from the basis that it's going to decrease uh, microbial activity. But at the same time, we know that a more successful, robust crop during the growing season um, is going to increase, comparatively speaking, to one that is um, overtaken, let's say, by weeds, not as healthy. So what do you tell someone who's pondering back and forth the usage of herbicide for weed control, um, maybe in a ag situation as well as a food plot situation? First off, I'll say take whatever you read on Facebook with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> There's there's a lot of uh, people, especially lawyers, that get paid to say certain things, and and then sometimes we we, we blindly accept them because we may uh, not have the knowledge of anything else. So when it comes to uh, wanting to reduce or eliminate herbicide usage. I would love to. I mean, there's speaking from an agricultural standpoint, there's no farmer in the world that would uh, would like nothing better than to reduce some of these expensive inputs that he has. But at the end of the day, we have to look at um, was it is it really detrimental? Because take, for instance, the probably the most popular herbicide in the world, glyphosate, A lot of, there have been claims to say, hey, you spray glyphosate, you're going to reduce your soil biology. Well, there have been farmers, agricultural producers that have used herbicides extensively for decades and that have absolutely amazing soil. And then there are some soils that I know that have not had any herbicide on them and they're very poor so we kind of have to look at things from several different viewpoints and and see what is best for the soil um because we don't want to go into it thinking that if i do this one action it's going to be very detrimental to soil health yeah I think, uh, yeah, for sure. I, I'm thinking of guys who are like, uh, I've got a crimper, I'm trying to eliminate herbicide, and then there's escaped weeds or, you know, you didn't get a good kill, and they're like, I can't use herbicide because any m- microbes that I've built up and I spray this, I'm going to kill them all. Like, it's just like you kill the microbes just as easy as a weed that's growing in your food plot. And, uh, right. boy, marketing for anti-glyphosate is strong in that arena. Oh, yeah. If you say the word glyphosate in certain Facebook groups that I know of, you may get banned immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So talk to me. Also, oh, go ahead. go ahead. It also kind of ties into the uh, the synthetic inputs, too, not to uh, open completely another can of worms, but we'll just crack it since we're so close. But when it comes to synthetic inputs, we all have also have to realize that if we are taking removing things off of a food plot, if we are not replacing those nutrients, then that is also going to uh, harm our soil health because we are not providing balance and adequate soil fertility to feed 
our cow per acre or our soil microbes. And so uh, we need to replace what we what we remove, and that may involve using some synthetic inputs. And so it goes back to I know some fields, some food plots that people don't want to put synthetic inputs, and their soil health is a lot less than somebody who who manages their soil from every direction and supplies what it needs. What about precision ag? I've seen you see so many overlays where people have like a yield map when they when they combine their field. Do you have any experience on that? Because I think that people I'm curious because obviously there's there's not a, a a combine for miles around my family farm. I don't have the experience in in crop uh, crop yields and crop uh, production, but I've seen a lot of yield maps, and I'm curious how that goes into adding those soil amendments, or is it still just a blanket effect of okay, these areas over here on the northwest part of the field are had very low yield. We did a soil test, and we see that the soil amendments do, is there a is there a kind of a, a two part system of going okay, yield is low. Now we've done soil tests and we and we confirmed that the reason that yield is low in that part of the field is because we lack this macronutrient. Let's add it at certain pounds per acre in that area. Or is it still just a general blanket effect of, okay, we removed this much crop. We Every year we add this many pounds per acre and go to that effect. That is an awesome question. And uh, sometimes I don't feel competent to answer some questions, but I will say that is one that is kind of in the center of my wheelhouse. Uh, like you mentioned, we know that fields vary in terms of productivity. And so the, the innovation of GPS has probably been one of the best things for the agricultural world because now we can, instead of managing on a field by field basis, we can now shrink that into a five, two and a half or one acre uh, standpoint. And the, the ability that we have when it comes to a yield monitor and being able to identify a lower and higher productivity areas of a field now allow us to uh, apply soil amendments differently. If we know that this area of the field is not going to produce what the rest of the field was, is going to, why should we put down the full addition of the soil amendments that we would put on a higher productivity acre? So one of the things that we do on our farm is uh, when I soil sample, I take samples based off of GPS coordinates in the field every acre or every two and a half acres. Then when we have our yield data, I line up our yield map and our soil test grid points. So basically I can see from this GPS location, I got, we'll just say 200 bushels of corn. This was my soil test. The next spot, I got 240 bushels of corn, and this was my soil test data on that spot. So then when we do that over hundreds or thousands of acres, now we have lots of actionable data points. So we can actually see what our soil test needs to look like to raise our yield goal. So then it doesn't matter what the lab thinks we need. It doesn't matter what some expert says our soil 
level needs to be. We have the each farmer has the data off of their own farm saying that if my soil test levels are with are in this line, I make more money. And that's powerful. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That, make that... more money, but I think at the same time you could say I've I'm improving my soil in a in a very precise way. You know, they're they're still accomplishing that that soil health standpoint because they're feeding it what it needs and what and, and avoiding areas that it doesn't need it. How, that's right. How often? And, how often are those are those areas in the farm where yield is lower uh, tied into last week? How often are those spots where the yield is lower? Is it lower because of lack of nutrients or lack of certain micro or macronutrients? Or is it an outside thing like like drainage or water standing in that area longer into the spring? How, what's the comparison, or do you even have an idea of which one is the problem uh, more regularly? That's a great question. Uh, we have to start with with the, the at the top. So if we have a water problem, uh, if we have saturated uh, if we have areas of the field that constantly stay saturated of course that means that we have no air in that soil if we have no air we have no aerobic microbes we basically limit our soil life and we limit our productivity so there's no fertilizer that we could put on that acre to fix a problem when it comes to water or air management yeah also on the flip side in our area uh, irrigation is very common. It, it encompasses a large part, a large percentage of our row crop acres here. And so we do fertilize our irrigated ground and our dry land ground differently because we know that the productivity is not going to be the same. And we go back to wanting balanced and ample fertility. So if we constantly apply large amounts of fertilizer on an area of the field that is not productive, we risk getting something out of balance. And when we get something too high, something else is going to be too low. And we know that our soil life is not going to uh, have as much proliferation as it will if we have a balanced soil. Mm, Great points, man. Just, just great stuff. If you're, as we kind of start to, wrap up but i uh there's a I, I love the fact that you're heavily in the ag world and you also have a lot of experience food plotting so is there any advice you would like to give to food plotters who are concerned about soil health soil fertility and are starting to head down this rabbit trail um of of soil health in regards to what they should be looking at as far as fertility, considering the crimper use, and moving forward with monocultures versus diversity. Ooh, where do we start? <laughs> well, when uh, I think we uh, we have not used the term regenerative in this uh, podcast, but we haven't, uh, man. <laughs> we kind of covered some of it. I, we didn't blatantly say it, and I'll probably get an email because uh, we didn't cover it, but. Yeah, if you want to jump into regenerative ag first, let's have it. 
Well, it ties into some things that I was thinking to answer your question directly, because uh, uh, in the notes, when you Mm -hmm. mentioned regenerative agriculture, I'm like, I've heard this term, but I could not tell you exactly what it means. So I actually had to Google a definition for what regenerative agriculture means. And it basically encompasses uh, restoring soils that have been degraded due to past management practices and basically rebuilding them. That's pretty so broad. So we think of, yeah. <laughs> it's it very kind of broad, t- honestly. It ties back into the principles of soil health. So I kind of look at regenerative agriculture and improving soil health as as somewhat interchangeable because they encompass the same practices. So if we're taking some land, let's just say that has been uh, – farm for many years and no doubt how our tillage done and maybe a reduction in soil organic matter and or nutrients and we want to see how we can turn it back around and bring it back up to what it was originally one thing that i tell people if you want a good idea of what your soil was originally go to your fence row go to an area that has not been disturbed for decades pull a soil sample and that can kind of give you a good idea of what your soil was originally, and then that can help you see what we need to do to improve our cultivated acres. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's a lot that can be said and when it comes to soil health, and we can get too deep too quickly, Well, and sometimes – go ahead. I, I, what I was thinking when you say regenerative ag – because that term is so broad, I guess what I would say my definition is based on what what is occurring in the world from what I've seen social media wise, video wise, all the other content wise is that it's basically just agriculture where they're trying to and and spare me the nasty email, whoever's out there. This is just what the appearance is to me when you watch things and read books like Dirt Soil growing a revolution is that it's trying to limit herbicide use, limit commercial fertilizer. It's big on no-till drilling. So it's not disturbing the soil. You're trying to incorporate livestock and, um, you're, you're definitely cover cropping. If it's, if it's on the crop yield side, probably even some interseeding where you've got certain blends planted right there in amongst your corn and, um, then after harvest, you have a cover crop, and then at some point, you're going to try to graze that cover crop to incorporate large uh, herbivores on the landscape. That's what it seems to me, but you could quickly jump and say that there's a part that says no herbicide, no commercial fertilizer, and we're trying to re- rewild but still grow crops, which I think is a little bit on too far extreme from what is actually happening with regenerative ag in the world of commodity growth and even livestock production. Right. And and like you mentioned, when we say things that we have to do, you mentioned tillage, and it, it's uh, kind of one of my pet peeves. Uh, people automatically connect no-till with soil health. Yeah. And there are some people that they aren't just no-till, they're never tillers you're never, ever going to see them do have anything more than a shovel in their arsenal. And sometimes that leads people to believe that they're going to have the healthy soil. They're, that's the silver bullet. But that may not always be the case. That's why 
I talk with farmers and growers about things like reducing tillage. We're not going to say that all tillage is detrimental. There are some occasions where it's good to incorporate things. If you've got all your fertility in the top two inches and your crops are dying when it gets dry because there's nothing to pull in from a soil layer that has moisture. Or if you're putting on a bunch of manure or litter or something that you're going to be losing a good portion of if you don't incorporate. there, There's not any black or white things per se when it comes to soil health. There's nothing that if you do this one practice, you're never going to have soil health. Or if you do this one practice, you're always going to have soil health. We have to come at it from a holistic standpoint. We have to, going back to what we were talking about, we have to see the management practices that we have. Are they moving us in the right direction? I think that, I think we're going to have to honestly be honest with ourselves a little bit and say the landscape and just ecosystems themselves are always changing. And there's not necessarily one practice that will forever just completely ruin the biotic life, the, 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 um, let's say overall healthiness of the soil that we couldn't ever get back. We look at like, you know, look at, look at all the, the acres that have been cut with timber. There's a lot of people on, on one side of the spectrum that say you can never cut timber. Like it's so bad erosion, all these things. It's like, well, what comes back after timber? Well, it's a renewable resource. I think that there's some practices in the soil health mindset too, that say so we can never, never, ever do, but it's like, soil is a, a you build upon it it's a renewable resource now right if we're headed in the right directions have these goals and we're incorporating them on a minor scale um the, those those practices that people say never ever do we could maybe find some wins in it you know yep and resource right and when we start giving hard and fast rules about we cannot do this ever, we have to do this, then people who are not set up to do that certain practice feel, hey, that excludes me from ever having healthy soil, so I'm not going to do anything. But what I try to help the uh, growers I work with to see that it doesn't matter what your management practices are, there are always steps that we can take to at least be moving in the right direction. We don't have to jump from zero to 100 in, in one year, but we can always do, there's something that we can always do. There's always going to be that low hanging fruit that we can grab that's going to give us the biggest benefit. And when it comes to learning about soil health, uh, something that I've been guilty of is having paralysis by analysis. Sometimes we do so much studying and we take in all these big words <laughs> when it comes to all the things that we can learn about when it comes to soil. But if we have all this information and we do nothing with it, then it's not going to help us in the end. So, I like to focus on what we actually can do. Let's take steps in the right direction and let's go one step at a time because it's, it's going to, we're going to see benefits as we take one step and another. Awesome. Well, what, I guess I have one last question and it's just to wrap everything up. Caleb, 
what would you say to the food plotter who is conscious of soil health and conscious of the, the goal of food plots needing to produce quality forage, you know, higher quantity and a higher quality of forage. What would you say should be their goal for food plots? With everything that you know about soil. Uh, the goal would be to try to influence uh, where the deer are eating from. Uh, speaking of the fact of uh, how much time are they spending in a food plot versus how much time are they spending uh, with native forages. So if if we're dealing with one but not the other, then we may be going backwards. So uh, let's let's work on our food plots. Let's make them good but let's not neglect everything else. We have to take everything up equally, we'll say. Gotcha. So so do what we can and uh, try to uh, do the things that we hit upon, reducing tillage, uh, using a diverse species, ones that have lots of below ground roots especially let's do everything we can to feed our microbes to have balanced and ample soil fertility and basically increase the overall health of our soil making sure that stays covered and then and then we'll be going in the right direction so in simple terms you're a landowner with four percent of your property being devoted to food plots and your goal is to provide high-quality food plots for lowering stress levels of deer, but also a hunting strategy. And you're also focused on, when you're all said and done and your time on Earth is over, that you've improved soil health and improved organic matter. What are the tools or how would you personally go about achieving those goals? <laughs> Um, anything in specific that you're uh, kind of referring to, you so know, know, what tools how to like how, are, okay, you're getting ready to plant your food plots in a few weeks, um, where you're at in Georgia, let's just say, okay, so spring food plot, walk me through the process that you would use to, to reach those goals. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, we have to have a roadmap of where we need to go when it comes to our soil. And that usually comes from taking a quality soil sample and sending it to a reputable lab and doing our best that we can to follow those recommendations. Now, you may have the people say that we need to cut out all our synthetic inputs, but if we have a poor soil to begin with, uh, there's we're, we're very limited in what we can do. So we have to start we have to start with uh, doing what we can to correct the soil. And then uh, if we can uh, utilize minimum tillage practices, no-till especially, that we can leave the soil covered and grow species that accomplish our goals, not, uh, not limited to just the wildlife standpoint, but also with our soil health in mind too, uh, having something in there to benefit that and, and then go from there. So, basically, you're gonna t- you've done a soil test sometime in February, March. Hopefully, 
You've, you've read what the lab said, so you've added those amendments. Now you're going to, and let's just say there's already a cover crop there or a fall food plot. Do you spray, crimp? How do you terminate that? Or do you even terminate that? And then I know you said you're no-till drilling. Yep. The way I usually do it is I terminate with a herbicide. Uh, okay. I can move a lot faster covering 45 foot at eight miles an hour versus going eight foot with something that is uh, physically terminating okay. a food plot. And so it, it comes down to, in my world, a time management thing. Uh, is is the juice worth the squeeze? Wow. If somebody has if somebody has all the equipment and they don't and they have plenty of time and they can get across all their acres and want to do a physical termination, uh, that can be done. But I'll I like to use a, a herbicide pass to clean things up. Okay. And then also uh, one thing that I've uh, I've started doing is leaving things standing because we we have high deer densities and we always struggle with overbrowsing of food plots and so I've started uh, leaving things standing even if even though it's it's brown it's still standing and drilling through that planting through that and basically is helping our early season growth of what we're planting so they aren't getting mowed off at the ground surface right after they come up. And it's actually giving them a chance to to survive because if if what we plant dies, then that's going to limit the things that that plant could do for our soil health as well. So based on my experience, if you spray and plant closer together – as in, I didn't spray and let it set for two weeks and then I plant. I feel like when you do that, a lot of that vegetation has been dying and decomposing while standing. And then when you run the drill through it, it has a, a lot better chance of laying flat. So right. do you yeah. put your window of time closer together? So you spray and then within the next few days or even within the next week, drill right through it. So it has that chance to to still have some green uh structure to it so it stays standing it also depends on what it is if i'm following back in with a very similar species let's take for instance i have a food fall food plot that is primarily a cereal grain and if i'm following that with a cereal grain I'm worried about pests and diseases and things transferring from one to the other, then I may move that time of terminating the previous crop and planting the next crop. I may widen that window a little bit. But if, say, I'm, I have zero grain fall food plot and I'm coming back in with uh, a mix of soybeans and other broadleaf crops, then I may even plant and then terminate. As long as we terminate before uh, before our crop emerges, and of course that's that's also considering that we're we're physically putting the seed in the ground. I don't know that how much I would like to do that if I'm just broadcasting the seed on top of the ground and then coming back with a herbicide pass. But if we're physically planting the seed in the ground, as long as we do our herbicide pass before our next crop germinates, then we're fine. And so if we're like, hey, I want to keep this green as long as possible because the deer are still utilizing it, then we can shorten that window in between termination and planting as well. Mm. 
Great points, Caleb. Man, great, great information here. Um, Matt, do you have any final questions? No, I just appreciate your time, Caleb. And, uh, you know, it's uh, all wonderful information. There's a lot to digest when people are considering what it is that fits for them in their system. Um, and let's say how deep into uh, the soil health aspect that they want to go when realizing the loftiness of the goals um, or the achievability of some of the soil health things that we read about and talk about specifically in a food plot application. So I appreciate your, your information um, revolving around all that, and what you've used, what works and what doesn't work. That's right. There's something that everybody can do, but but don't overwhelm yourself. I mean, oh, let's let's go in the right direction and and do what we can. <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit like uh, when you see food plotters uh, really getting into soil health and trying to understand it. It's like when you were a kid and you jumped in the pool and you're like, I'm going to swim in the deep end down to touch the vent. And you're like, I'm I'm taking all the content I can, and I keep diving into it, and I'm going down this hole, I'm going in the deep end, and then you realize, whoa, the bottom is way further down there than you expected. <laughs> yep, there is. I don't think that there is anybody in the world that knows what everything that encompasses soil health. I mean, every year they're they're learning new things, and I mean that's awesome. That's awesome that we can we can continue progressing forward when it comes to soil health. But like we talked about earlier, uh, let's not dump a pile of icing on a plate without having a cake to put it on. We gotta start at the top and work our way down. When soil health becomes our limiting factor that's when it's the best time to work on it. If we have other limiting factors, we may be spending a lot of time and energy and resources doing things that we may not see the biggest gains at the end of the year. So it's a, we can look at it from multiple sides, depending on where we're coming from and what our situation is. Great points. Great points. Caleb, how can they find you? What's your business called? Do you have social media or is it you personally on social media in case somebody wants to follow along or reach out and uh, and and hear more of your thoughts. Yep, uh, on social media, it's just me personally, Caleb Traw. Uh, I have to spell my last name T R A U G H, so people uh, search for it correctly. I'm on uh, Facebook, and I do a little uh, few things uh, on Twitter as well when it comes to uh, agricultural and and soil health such. Perfect as well. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank y'all for having me. Yeah.